1: You're listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I have a very special episode. This year, 2020, marks the 75th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations, and this episode is going to be released on June 26th, the same day that the UN Charter was signed in San Francisco in 1945. And I'll be speaking with one of the foremost experts on UN history, Alana O'Malley, about a deeply researched and important book called The Diplomacy of Decolonization America, Britain, and the United Nations during the Congo Crisis, 1960 to 1964. It came out in 2018. O'Malley's book examines the global contours of the Congo Crisis. It was a crisis that fragmented the newly independent Republic of the Congo and rocked the international order in the early 1960s. It even led the United Nations, for the first time ever to dispatch peacekeepers to protect the sovereignty of one of its member states against secessionists. O'Malley guides readers through this complicated story. She charts the sprawling geography of the crisis as she pulls readers through foreign capitals, the United Nations, and the Congo itself, and she shows how the crisis transformed the Cold War and especially the broader politics of decolonization. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Alana O'Malley about her new book called The Diplomacy of Decolonization, America, Britain, and the United Nations During the Congo Crisis. Thanks for joining me today, Alana.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. And your book was perfect for a UN nerd like myself. And so I'm, I was really happy to um, get my hands on a copy and read it. And I learned tons about something that was just critical to um, you know UN history, but then also as you um show um really clearly in your book um to decolonization itself um and so just to begin the interview how did you become a historian
0: well that's a great starting question um i think as an irish person history is very much part of our identity and our culture so i certainly grew up and uh, surrounded by um books and that sense of the um the importance of history um and then i think also uh Two other elements were important, which was that my granduncle was a missionary priest in Africa, so I used to hear my grandmother talking a lot about his experiences. So I kind of put the idea of Africa in my head um, at a very young age, um, and then also on top of that, the Congo was the first uh, significant peacekeeping mission for Irish troops. Um, during which many of them were killed in 1960. So the Congo always had uh, a a kind of a cultural resonance in Ireland, um, and so did the UN. So I think those um, various uh, kind of cultural and um, familial influences really drew me to studying history um, in university. And then I was lucky enough to get straight into a PhD program when I was 21 at the European University Institute in Florence, which is the most beautiful place in the world to do a PhD without question, <laughs> but also um, an incredibly intellectually rigorous place um, to study international history. So that was um, a great start for me.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this book is based off of your dissertation. Um, and so I'm just curious, what sort of, um, like, how does this, book differ from the project that you imagined when you first began the project?
0: Yeah, so when I started, I mean, I was quite a young kind of green uh, historian. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really had intended initially to write about the Congolese reaction to the Congo crisis. So I knew from the literature, there was a lot written about the Cold War perspective, um, and a a lot written about the UN military um, element. But there was, to me, this curious um, kind of missing link, which was what were the Congolese saying about what was going on. So that was my initial plan, which was to go to Kinshasa and, and read the, national, the, the record of the National Archive. But for a bunch of logistical and resource reasons, um, partially to do with the, the security of traveling there alone um, and spending a lot of time there without having any real contacts, um, and also access to the archives, uh, and also financial resources. That was really not um, the best approach at that moment in 2007. So rather, my uh, I started to think about other ways to get at that, those voices. And that led me to really work in the UN archive in New York, which I always had kind of wanted to know much more about, excuse me. But I had never really seen UN sources featured very heavily in um, the literature on the Congo or on other decolonization elements. So um, I decided to apply for a visiting fellowship um, at NYU because we had an exchange program with them at the European University. And I was lucky enough to get selected there. So I actually spent most of my NYU semester at mm. the UN Archive in New York, <laughs> um, which was very, 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 very um, fruitful opportunity for me. Um, to really get into depth at the UN um, archives there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to know more about um, that. Um, uh, so, so just like the, the research experience um, of writing this uh, you know, first a dissertation and then um, a book. Um, can you say something a bit more about the UN archives and why you found them so useful?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing that I um, found was that it's a very small archive but it's got loads and loads of material. So the reading room is tiny, but there's actually so much um, paper in, in New York at the UN Archive. Um, and I was really curious why nobody has been here, you know, working on this subject before. And I'm sure that they have, but it's just that I hadn't come across them um, at that point when I started in 2007. So um, I was very impressed, not only with the um, amount of files there, um, but also with... The way in which the UN archive was organized led me deeper and deeper into the various departments and the various centers. So one of, the office, one, of the, one of the departments that I found very useful, for example, was the Office of Legal Affairs, which I knew nothing about when I started. But I found that there I could get records of General Assembly committees where the Congo was discussed Um, in very different ways by different actors than only in the Security Council. Um, The archivists were also extremely helpful in pointing me towards different types of records to look at. So one another um, set of records that was so useful was from something called the Congo Advisory Committee. And that was a committee specifically created um, to manage the UN mandate in the Congo, but it was only open to troop contributing countries. So there you had a whole set of voices from places like um, Ghana and Indonesia um, and uh, uh, later Nigeria um, and Ireland and Sweden. And they were discussing what should happen in the Congo quite away from the Great powers and the Security Council. So it was a very different conversation. Um, and there the Congolese were responding to what they thought should also be developed. Um, And so I found that the U.N. archives were just incredibly rich and the archivists were fantastic. But also being in the States um, for a prolonged period was a great opportunity because I was able to go to NARA in Washington, D.C. um, And also to the Kennedy Library in Boston, which surprisingly has as much paperwork on the Congo as almost every other crisis that Kennedy dealt with, except for Vietnam. So um, this was also um, a surprisingly rich um, resource. Um, And then I also, of course, I mean, everybody should go to the National Archives in London at Kew. That was um, potentially the best archive in the world. And there was a lot of material there. Um, So that was kind of what I did for the dissertation. Um, And then I was kind of, I got a, a position at Leiden University in the Netherlands straight out of my, well, almost straight out of my PhD. And I had great support from the History Institute there, Um, so they helped me to. They funded a trip to back to Nara to look at the CIA files, Um, and that was really important for kind of filling out the intelligence aspect of what the US knew about what was happening in the Congo and when they knew it. Um, And a lot of those files have been released since I had done my dissertation, so that was really helpful. Um, And then I, you know, at the end of the defence, one of my jury members was Marilyn Young, God rest her, and she was just a fantastic supporter of my work from the beginning. And she had said at the end of my um, thesis defence, you have a choice about the book. It'll either be about Anglo-American relations or it could be about this um, slightly more interesting element, which is about the African and Asian countries and their role in the Congo and at the UN. And so I knew then from the, from the beginning of writing the book that it would hopefully be quite different from what's in the dissertation. Um, and I set out to try to get different access to different archives. So I applied for a Gerda Henkel Stiftung research grant, and they generously funded a trip for me to India and to Ghana um, and there I found just fantastic resources on the Congo. And I found what was so great about the, the spitting of the research across time, which I know is a luxury that not everybody has, because, you know, at a certain point you get pressured into producing the book. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a long, hard road. Um, but what I really enjoyed was that the voices that I found in the UN archives were echoed at the national level in Ghana and India, where they had lots of paperwork about the Congo what was going on? The internal discussions. Um, so that was um, a really kind of um, fruitful time doing this research um, in these different places.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, listening listening to you talk about the research experience now, um, like it, I'm starting to think that like the fact that all of these different archives had so much material on the Congo crisis actually like reveals just how significant this moment was um, for so many different actors. And yeah. And so, I mean, we're going to, we're going to get into all those different actors, but um, before we really dig into the arguments of your book, um, I thought it might be useful for you to um, sort of get our listeners and me up to speed on um, the Congo, it's fight for decolonization um, and the Congo crisis itself. So what exactly do we need to know um, about um, Congolese decolonization to understand the Congo crisis?
0: So I think that there's four elements that really make the Congo stand out as a case study of decolonization that's different from other decolonization stories. The first one is that the Congo doesn't just appear on the map in 1960. um, It's a place of strategic interest for uh, decades before that. It was, of course, the private estate of King Leopold of Belgium in the late 19th century and then um, a colony of the Belgian state um, in the first half of the 20th century. And as part of that process, you had quite prominent um, writers and thinkers such as Joseph Conrad um, and Roger Casement, who traveled into the Congo and wrote these kind of lurid accounts of the horror and violence of Belgian colonialism. So from the beginning uh, of the 20th century, the Congo is kind of inscribed um, in Conrad's words as, you know, um, the dark heart of Africa and this kind of dark space on the map. And he writes, of course, the heart of darkness based on his experience on the Congo River. But even on the political level, the, the humanitarian aspect of colonialism is um, exposed in all its uh, brutality by the reports that come from the Congo. So the Congo has this international resonance among humanitarian campaigners and human rights groups, if you can put that term on, on the people who advocated for, um, uh, for advocated for the end of colonialism in the Congo at that time. Um, and that really kind of marks it out as being a little bit different. Now, the second element is related to the first, is that, well, why was it so Horrific um in the Congo. Um and part of that is because the uh regime was designed to exploit the resources of the Congo state and the Congolese people themselves. So it's an incredibly rich country. It should be one of the richest countries in the world, but the um, um the, the richness of the raw materials has um never been really used to benefit the Congolese state in the way that it could be um, due to a bunch of different reasons. And that was also what was driving the kind of rigor or, if you like, violence um, of the Belgian colonial regime to that kind of quest for richness. Um, And that's kind of where a lot of the humanitarian atrocities committed were um, justified. So that kind of resource element um, is very, very important. And that plays a huge role in the outbreak of the crisis in 1960. The third dimension is, of course, the fact that it's a a Cold War um, crisis, a Cold War consideration. So there is a lot of literature that set up the Congo as a Cold War episode, you know, um, a hot episode of the Cold War in some authors' views. Um, If you look a little bit further into it, it it really doesn't seem that the Soviet Union had a grand strategy to use Congo as an entry point for communism into Africa. Um, It's, it's, you know, geographically extremely far from Moscow. And they do provide some material support to some Congolese actors, but they don't seem to have had a very um, kind of nefarious strategy of turning Congo communist. But nonetheless, it's perceived, their actions are perceived as Cold War, um, th- as a Cold War threat by the Americans. And the U.S., really from the beginning, is quite determined that the Congo, with all its resources, including, of course, the uranium that they use for the atomic bomb that they drop in Japan, uh, that that should be under the control of a Western-friendly uh, government and that there's no way that the Soviet Union should be able to take hold there at all. So that brings the Cold War element kind of wittingly and unwittingly to be a stronger part of the Congo crisis than other decolonization stories. The final element that marks the Congo out as being a little bit different is the constellation of actors of the state itself. So the the territory is the size of Western Europe, uh, across which in 1960 you have at least 200 languages spoken. So the sense of the nation or the sense of the state is not really that strong um, in the years coming up to independence. So it's not really that surprising then that upon independence, you have a lot of dubious claims of competing sovereignty. Um, You have a lot of tension between various um, rival politicians, between various provincial and ethnic authorities. Um, And you have a lot of um, that tension between What does it mean to be a modern post-colonial state um, that is one whole unit? Or how do you go back to the pre-colonial legacy of the Congo, which is um, a system of kingdoms, which is very different from a modern um, Westphalian state model. So this also makes the whole Congo crisis um, very problematic. And slightly linked to that is you have this sense of pressure from the other newly independent African states or remaining African colonies who want to be states watching the Congo. um, And they're really, they're, they're really afraid that this will be the worst case scenario for decolonization that will knock the whole decolonization project down across the continent. Um, And that creates extra political tension.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And so in um, similarly broad strokes, um, can you just Tell our listeners what exactly the Congo crisis was.
0: Okay. So um, the Congo crisis breaks out in 1960 when the Congo officially becomes independent. Now, the road to independence is actually quite swift. Um, There's only really about two years of agitation for independence before 1960. And a lot of that is led by um, some trade union leaders, but also a man called Patrice Lumumba. And Lumumba is um, a former postal clerk from um, the northern region of the Congo around the city of Kisangani, which was Stanleyville at that time. And he has a bit of a checkered record. He um, has spent some time in prison and he um, had been accused of corruption. But he emerges as a very, very, very intelligent and charismatic leader. And he manages to... He, he's a great public speaker, right? So he's very, very... Persuasive, And he, he manages in his speeches to really convince a lot of Congolese citizens that they're part of a nation and that they're united in this struggle against Belgium, that they're anti-imperialists and that they're anti colonialist And he himself is influenced quite heavily by uh, Kwame Nkrumah and Ghana and these ideals of Pan-Africanism. Um, and so he emerges as a great um, leader during these years. But it's also to do, to do with the fact of the Belgian kind of reaction to independence. So they invite the Congolese leaders to a roundtable discussion, discussion in Brussels in January 1960. Um, and there they say, oh, listen, yeah, it's fine. You can be independent in six months. But actually, the Congo state is broke. So despite all your resources, we have spent quite a lot of money building infrastructure. And so now you need to pay us back. So on the one hand, they're giving independence quite quickly. But on the other hand, they're really hanging this, um, you know, this threat along with it that, I mean, it's going to be a hard road towards independence. Um, So the elections take place in June 1960. Patrice Lumumba emerges as the prime minister and his political rival, Joseph Kasavubu, who's from a different ethnic tribe, which is important later, um, and who um, doesn't have a very close relationship with Lumumba, it has to be said, he emerges as the president. Um, and so this is kind of a, a, a weak coalition at the beginning. Um, and so this is what happens really uh, in the road up to independence. Now, in the first week of independence, two problems arise. The first one is that the Congolese army, which is filled in the lower ranks by Congolese, but is only staffed by Belgian officers, they're told that independence has no bearing on the structure of the army. So they lead um, a mutiny against the Belgian officials. And this really erupts into violence on the streets and um, particularly violence um, towards the European populations. And Brussels, in response to the Belgian government, they send paratroopers into Kinshasa to protect on the on the pretense of protecting the European population. Um, but this is perceived immediately as a massive violation of the new Congolese sovereignty, and that produces a crisis. The second thing that happens um, in the first week of July 1960 is that the southeastern province of Katanga, where a lot of the mineral resources are located, secedes uh, under uh, what's largely believed to be a puppet regime of the Belgian government led by a guy called Misha Chombe. Now, Misha Chombe claims to represent the Katangese uh, people, but Katanga is um, a very carefully balanced coalition of smaller ethnic groups that are related to each other. Um, And so his political legitimacy from the beginning is very, very weak. Um, And it's also, when you consider the economic importance of Katanga, it becomes less important whether or not he's politically legitimate. Because in 1960, the Katangan province produces alone 60% of the revenue of the Congolese state because it has 69% of the world's industrial diamonds, 49% of the world's cobalt and 9% of global copper output. Um, And so it's an extremely, extremely rich and also extremely productive province and that's important. So this casts then the Congo... From the first week of independence, into a civil, constitutional, and financial crisis. <laughs> um,
1: the two actors that you really zoom up on, um, at least like uh, you know, in your subtitle, um, are the British and the Americans, um, and um, they care so much about the Congo crisis. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could um, perhaps um, tell us a bit about why, um, you know, for instance, the British cared um, about the Congo crisis.
0: So the British care about the Congo for um, a couple of different reasons. The first one is that they're really afraid that this um, instability, um, this instability caused by decolonization will spill over into their remaining territories and their remaining colonies, um, particularly in the border regions, right around Tanganyika and um, what's now Zambia. Um, And they're really worried that, This um, idea of uh, freedom will just take off and upset their own decolonization plans. Um, But the other reason I think it's even more pressing for them is that British companies are heavily invested in Katanga. And um, behind the um, resources is a massive mining corporation called Union Minière du Haut Katanga. And one of the financial backers of that group is a British company. Um, and uh, on the board of that British company are really um, kind of heavyweight politicians including the governor of the Bank of England who has reported, is reported to have shares in Katanga and even the foreign secretary at some stage during the crisis is queried whether or not he has personal financial interests in Katanga. So this kind of goes towards the heart of the British elite um, in terms of um, their financial well-being but it also goes towards the heart of the British state because they need to preserve access to those resources, um, particularly the copper belt, which runs um through Katanga um and also is an essential part of the British Empire. Um, and so they're really this fear kind of runs through Britain, France and Belgium around the same time that decolonization politically is one thing, but economic decolonization is quite another thing. And they're really scrambling at this time to preserve those colonial networks of power and influence to maintain access to resources especially in the congo
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah and i mean y- you have so much material on um sort of how the british are trying to defend themselves um, within the un um and um uh yeah it's like it it's it's really clear just how anxious they are about um, you know the goings on in um, in the Congo um, from their own um, yeah like imperialist decolonization perspective. Um, I mean, at one point um, there was a, a representative uh, um, of Britain at the UN who um, you know parroted, uh, um an old Churchill line uh, for his own purposes. We shall fight on resolutions. We shall fight in the corridors. We shall fight in the committees. We shall never abstain. I um, yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. so clear that like, rhetoric, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a really deep anxiety about the Congo crisis.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They're terrified. I mean, on the one hand, you have this kind of um, economic dimension to think about. You have this kind of what they perceive as the strike uh, at the heart of um, British decolonization plans um, and British imperialism. And then it's all played out on the international stage, which is incredibly embarrassing for the British. Um, They're getting attacked left, right and centre, not just at the UN, but also by the British press in the British House of Commons. You have these long debates about the Congo, which is really a country that isn't even um, on their map before that because it's not a British colony. Um, So they really embark on this campaign um, to preserve their own international prestige at the UN during these years. Um, And they really try to do that by um, defending their record on colonialism, which really isn't very good or very convincing. And so it frustrates a lot of the British political elite that the UN becomes this um, kind of battleground for influence um, during this time. Um, And that exacerbates their whole policy and tension and approach to the UN.
1: Okay, so that's the British approach. Um, but um, now I want to know about um how the u s sees the Congo crisis because they have a very different lens on seeing the uh, the Congo crisis and the u n and decolonization. um, so can you help us uh, understand that?
0: yeah, so um indeed the u s perceived this very differently from the beginning um Eisenhower, um in nineteen sixty you know, the, the Congo really isn't very important to the U.S. at that time. Um, he is you know, reported to have made this infamous remark now about how he could think of nothing better than if Patrice Lumumba would fall into a river full of crocodiles um, because they just perceive Lumumba as somebody who can't, they can't work with and who's quite irascible and um, quite temperamental and not really someone they want in charge of um, a big, strategically important, rich African country. Um, But the U.S. interests um, aren't very clear, really, for the first, uh, especially for the first six months. Um, Now, that's partially to do with the fact that there are other kind of ongoing crises that happen at this time. I mean, you have the, the acceleration of events in Berlin, and then later, of course, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the Congo is only um, tangentially interesting for the Americans because of the Cold War perspective. And it's only when the Mumba makes declarations about being loyal to the Soviet Union that the Congo really starts to become a hot topic for the State Department. Um, and to a large extent, that's fine because they don't want to get involved in Africa Um, because they want to preserve relationships with the European powers. And really, in the beginning, Africa, the whole map um, is seen as a space for European interests. Um, And this is reflected really well at the UN, because it's not until 1961 that the US abandoned their policy of automatically abstaining on colonial resolutions. So up until that point, even in the General Assembly, the US just automatically abstains. Because they want to preserve the relationships with European powers. Um, But after 1961, Kennedy comes to power and he really wants to shake things up. And he sees um, African countries as a very important ally, very important allies in the Cold War, but also more widely. And um, as has been noted very well, I think, by Robert Rakovey's book, he courts um, third world leaders quite a lot um, and then the Congo becomes something much more pressing and as the crisis continues the Americans just get drawn more and more into it so they they're they kind of start off with this kind of almost one leg in the door kind of interested in the Congo from the Cold War angle but not really certainly not willing to commit many resources to it. But by the end of the crisis, they're in there with both feet. They're, um, they're the major funders of the whole UN campaign. Um, and they're the ones who eventually um, strategically organized the um, imposition into power of Mobutu in 1964. So in a short space, they turn from not being completely concerned with the Congo to being totally totally involved in its internal politics and that's really to do with um the cobalt element, but also strategic resources and that control of the uranium in Katanga is very very important and very influential but then once they realize how rich the Congo is um they also see it as an incredibly good having an incredibly good potential for American business interests and American private industrialists um and that 's part of the wider strategy of developing Central and southern mm-hmm. africa
1: yeah i, I mean the, your, your your material in the u s is also really interesting because um, it reveals just how um, uh, like disheveled foreign policy was because you have like all these different branches of the government, um, you know the state department the the white House, um, but then you also have the CIA um, you know they all have like an interest in the Congo. Um, and at sometimes, and, and sometimes they're um, doing things um, that are um, contradictory. And so, for instance, um, like the one point of agreement between the U.S., um, Britain, and as well as um, France and, um, and other European states um, was that um, Lumumba was um, the problem. And so, um, you know, the the U.S. Um, rather infamously um, uh, dispatched uh, an assa- a CIA assassination squad um, into the Congo to um, assassinate him, although. Uh, lumumba was eventually killed by uh by by congolese forces themselves um and so yeah so like i mean your book is about how un policy is determined and that's like always contentious and it's complicated and contradictory but then also like the um the member states themselves their foreign policies um uh have the same sort of um you know contentiousness yeah mhm
0: i mean i i i think it's you know important to say that firstly that the Lumumba is killed by the Belgians, right? With the Canivians and the collaboration of the Americans and the British. It's, he's actually physically murdered by Congolese forces, but they're serving wider purposes. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and and for the, for the Americans, yeah. I mean, they, they have this crazy scheme that they will poison Lumumba's toothpaste. Um, and they don't realize that he doesn't use toothpaste. So they have many kind of failed attempts to, to try to get him before um He is eventually assassinated in January 1961. But it shows, I I think when you look at the contestation of these policies internally, um, it kind of shows us the ways in which Cold War politics tended to securitize the challenges of decolonization. So for the British and the Americans especially, they see in decolonization this massive um, threat, this security threat that's posed by what's happening in the Congo and that security isn't just about security in the Congo it's about security of relationships in Africa it's maybe even Cold War um, security Um, and so that's what I found fascinating was that neither country has a very clear policy um, and this is the way you know of course foreign policy works is that it's not that you just have one set of ideals that you execute but they, neither one of them has as much of a clear policy in the beginning. But as they continue, their policy also becomes more and more convoluted and contested internally. For the Americans, it's all about this balance between preserving your relationships with European powers. So not doing too much, but also ensuring that the Congolese um, are friendly towards the West and also ensuring that they maintain relationships with other African countries in the region because they don't want them to fall under communist influence either. But for the British, it's much more about preserving these imperial networks of power, which is precisely opposed to the independence regimes and the quest for economic sovereignty um, and uh, civil and political sovereignty that go on in post-colonial African states. So it's actually quite opposed to the aims of those powers that the U.S. also wants to preserve relationships with. So it all kind of gets blended together um, in the Congo crisis because um, the Congo has so many different dimensions of challenges. And that's what I found really interesting was that, on the one hand, you have this very very well laid out debate at the Security Council about the the, the U.N. mission and um, what would happen. But then you see the Congo crisis start to reverberate and spill over into all kinds of other debates. I mean, in ECOSOC, when they're talking about economic sovereignty, they're talking about the worst case scenario of decolonization that the Congo presents. And then in the decolonization spaces, such as the Fourth Committee and the Special Committee on Decolonization, the Committee of 24, that's set up in 1961, they're constantly using the Congo as, if you like, um, uh, um, a measuring rod for every other case of decolonization, saying that, you know, this can't happen in South Africa or this can't happen um, in Namibia or elsewhere because it's so bad in the Congo. So actually what we, what I hope that the book tries to show is that um, because the foreign policies of a lot of the states involved in the Congo crisis are um, deeply, deeply, deeply motivated by the fear of the unknown of how decolonization interacts with the Cold War, it actually produces a specific dynamic where you see the importance of decolonization and its principles um, spilling over into, um, into affecting the policies of those countries. So it's not simply that they have a decolonization approach that they follow. Their decolonization policies are shaped by these UN discussions because of the ways in which the threat of the Congo is perceived.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Um and it, I mean that's that's also why um uh you know the, the the stuff that you're writing about is so complex because like the chains of causation are kind of going in um all sorts of directions. Um and so um you 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 you've already alluded to um decolonization um and I think that we should have a um a conversation about this because um like one of one of the um, most fascinating um, pieces of your book is how you situate um the Congo crisis in, you know, sort of like against the, the backdrop of um, uh, decolonization. Um, and so, um I'm really interested in um sort of how um, the um sort of the afro-asian, um, you know third worldist bloc is um, uh, approaching the Congo crisis. And so uh, you know, like at one point, you actually write that, the Congo crisis um, became a lightning rod for wider anti-colonial critiques. Um, And so who were some of these historical actors from um, the third world um, who were um, um, really connected with um, the Congo crisis?
0: So the first person is obviously Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana, and he's He's, he's got himself very invested in the Congo. He has a personal relationship with Lumumba. And when Lumumba gets killed, he really, it, it kind of, and I hate using this word because I think it, it's, it's, it's really um, politically um, perceived in the wrong way, but he becomes much more extreme in his views. I was going to say he radicalizes, but he becomes much more extreme in his views about imperialism and um, colonialism and anti-colonialism um, after Lumumba is murdered. Um, and, but he's also invested politically because he has sent um, a huge contingent of Ghanaian soldiers to the Congo um, as part of the UN mission. Um, and then so too is Nehru. So Jawaharlal Nehru from um, India. And he has also sent a, a massive contingent of Indian soldiers um, to the UN mission. And he's also viewing the Congo as this important moment for global South countries. Now, that you have these two then great statesmen who are very much leaders of that Afro-Asian bloc. Sukarno in Indonesia is another one who oftentimes references the Congo in his UN addresses and is very much involved. Indonesia also sends lots of troops to the Congo. So these kind of, um, in fact, three powerhouses really um, are invested in the Congo politically. Um, but also really believe that this is a a turning point for decolonization. Um, And then on the other hand, you have a lot of other, um, if you like, smaller powers that are also extremely concerned with this Congo crisis. Um, And that includes countries like uh, Algeria, who is there in the middle of their own struggle against France at this point, of course. Um, Morocco, um, Egypt. And these countries really believe that the Congo um, represents, you know, the whole test of the decolonization project uh, um, and its entirety. Um, and it shows time and again, in their view, how far Western countries are prepared to go to protect their interests. Um, and so you you see this coming out of a lot of other debates on other questions. Um, and you also see this being quite problematic because a lot of the um, actors on the ground in the Congo who are sponsored by Western countries, either through the CIA or the Belgian security services in Katanga, they're quite impervious to UN resolutions, and they really they resist UN troops on the ground. So this comes out in UN debates where um, you have declarations from countries like Tunisia saying, "You know, how is it that?" Um, these individuals in the Congo and these these kind of spaces are impervious to the UN, cannot be controlled, cannot be uh, maintained by the UN. Um, And that's really because they have the support of Western powers. And a lot of the the discussion then, you know, starts to turn from very material questions um, concerning these countries' um, contributions and concerning their um, interests in the Congo to bigger issues, right? About what's the meaning of post-colonial sovereignty? How do you is the Congo sovereign or is it not sovereign if the UN and the Western powers are, are there? Um for a lot of the Afro Asian um, bloc members, the UN doesn't do a great job. And they're not they support the mission, but they're not really very happy with um what's happening on the ground. Um and it really then explodes in nineteen sixty four when is the Stanleyville hostage crisis. Um, And that's very important because sometimes that's not seen as part of the original Congo crisis. By 1964, two thirds of the country is under rebel control because the central government isn't very strong. Um, The UN are quietly leaving the country. They've they've ended the secession of Katanga in January 1963, so they're on their way out the door and these rebel groups um, spring up. Um, and, they're you know, the rebels are not um, all interested in declaring secession. I mean, a lot of them are motivated by the economic and social hardship of life in independent Congo. Um, so it's, there's a bunch of different reasons that they um, are resisting the central government. But one group in particular called the Simbas lead um, a very successful uh, taking over um, of uh, Kisangani. And as part of that, they capture over 200 European citizens and they hold them hostage in a hotel. And among that group is, um, unknown to them, the head of the CIA field mission office. And um, he's in the guise of a, a diplomat. But he's set, he, he, you know they have excellent radio communication with Washington and the rebels um, communicate through him. For this period in the crisis, um, and the rebels threatened to to murder these hostages um, quite in quite brutal fashion in front of a monument of Lumumba, as a statement about the um, that you know the kind of threat that the West poses to the Congo. Um, and as a result of these threats, Belgium, Britain, and the United States organize a rescue mission for the hostages. So they arrive early in the morning. there's kind of a, chaos and there's real confusion about what's going on a lot of the hostages get murdered and sometimes even in the crosshairs um, and the whole thing is a bit of a disaster I mean they do rescue a lot of people but they leave behind all of the Congolese who were not involved in this and those Congolese get murdered in retribution by the rebel forces Um, so this leads to a very long debate at the UN Security Council where the Afro-Asian countries who have you know, been very frustrated with the Western, um, imper- you know, what they call kind of barefaced imperialism, imperialism, um, they managed to pass a Security Council resolution condemning the Western action. And that's the first time ever that the UN passes a resolution condemning the West uh, anywhere. Um, and so a, a lot of that Afro-Asian um, motivation then is because the whole project of decolonization is at risk because the meaning of sovereignty, of territorial sovereignty isn't very clear in that post-colonial world. Um, And because what's happening in the Congo, in their view, driven by Western interests, seems to threaten and shake the very foundations of the system. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and and, um, you also sort of... Um, you, I mean, you talk about the the Congo Crisis as sort of like a, a stepping stone towards uh, like the later like Third World Solidarities uh, um, of the nineteen seventies, um, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so the book does center on um, the United Nations and and in particular um, the Uni- the the UN operation in the Congo, um, and so. This is something that we've kind of talked around so far, um, but I was wondering if you could um, say a bit more about how exactly um, the UN, which is you know the, the politics of the UN were extremely contentious, um, uh, and obviously member states had um, you know different perspectives, how the UN um, uh, came to some sort of agreement to dispatch a peacekeeping force into the Congo.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked me that because I should <laughs> have mentioned that earlier, perhaps. The UN um, at this moment is perhaps it's, it's one of the high points of, of the United Nations uh, role and relevance in the world, if you like. Um, and that's partially to do with the fact that in 1960, they gain over 30 new members from newly independent countries in Africa and Asia. Um, and that means that the balance of power in the General Assembly shifts and it's no longer just pre- the preserve of the West. Now it's controlled by... Two-thirds of those members coming from the global South. So that changes the nature of politics at the UN quite profoundly. And all of a sudden you have on the agenda all these issues about economic sovereignty, um, control of natural resources, um, human rights that really were not that important um, in the imperial world of the 1950s um, to the Western powers because you know essentially this was not something that they were interested in debating in public. Um, So that makes the UN important. But the other important element here is that the Secretary General is um, the Swedish diplomat called Dag Hammarskjöld, who I'm sure that um, many of your listeners will be familiar with. And Hammarskjöld is um, a bit of a dark horse. He gets the job because he's seen as um, a safe pair of hands for the UN. Um, But actually, he's a visionary. And he believes that the UN should have as one of its primary purposes To protect the independence of newly independent countries and to protect the role of small and medium powers in the UN system, not the great powers. And he doesn't think that the UN should be, as Arnie Westad um, sometimes has described it, as the arm of America abroad. Um, So this really kind of then creates this kind of vigor and motivation and this sense of uh, almost a kinship between the Office of the Secretary General and these. Um, global South countries, and that is built up quite deliberately by Hammarskjold, and he, you know, he's like for the first time ever the African group meet with Hammerschild, um in 1960 about the Congo crisis. I mean, they've never met with the Secretary General before. Um, so this is really a, a dawning of kind of a new era of political developments at the UN that's quite specific to the to the moment. Um, and so when the Mumba appeals to Hammarskjold to intervene, to defend the sovereignty of the Congo, um, Hammershaw turns to the Charter. And under Article 99, the Secretary General can bring to the attention of the Security Council any issue that he feels is a threat to peace and security. And so he invokes his power under the article for the first time. So no Secretary General has done that before. And he brings the Congo crisis to the Security Council for debate. Um, And they mandate a peacekeeping mission. Um, And so this is really... Uh, also under uh, chapter seven, really an unusually um, robust mandate. It's um, really uh, a kind of a strong mandate from the beginning that gives the, the UN quite a lot of power, not just in the military aspect, but also in providing what's called technical support. So the civil and political advisors that the UN will also send to the newly independent country, so the UN takes on at one bite the the kind of challenge of ending the secession militarily, but also providing a whole new state building apparatus for a state that's not a state, and it's all precedent setting. And that UN mission is called ONUC. It's the first UN mission to the Congo. Um, that mission sets a lot of different precedents, both you know in positive and negative ways. Um, one other one that's just worth mentioning, I won't go through them all, um, is in 1961, in February, the peacekeepers are allowed for the first time by security council mandate to use force in self-defense. Um, and that again, it changes quite dramatically the nature of the crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and can you just say a bit about like what um, this operation looks like in the Congo? like? Um, What do they do? Um, uh, Were they successful?
0: Right. So um, the different national contingents send troops to the Congo and they're mostly based um, around the capital initially. Uh, And then later on in August 1960, Harmashul personally goes to the Congo to negotiate with Misha Chombe, who is that leader uh, of the secessionist province. And he negotiates the peaceful entry of UN troops into Katanga. And what they, what are they doing, is another question. Essentially, what the UN troops are doing is in the capital. You know, they're helping to set up this kind of state-building architecture, but they're also helping to um, move across the territory and to maintain law and order. Um, so they're acting as peacekeepers between various um, Congolese factions, but most importantly, between the Congolese army and the Katangan gendarmes. So when the secession is declared, of course, in June 1960, the Mumba immediately sends his army uh, across the Congo to end the secession militarily. um, And that causes a huge amount of um, fighting and tension. The UN are sent in to... um, help to alleviate that process but they become kind of unwittingly part of it um, due to kind of a bunch of different strategic errors um, logistical challenges the national contingents often aren't well connected to each other um, they have the wrong kind of resources or not enough resources um, so the UN tries to control also some strategic spaces like they try to control the airports to stop the infiltration of um, Russian or American troops for that matter. They try to control the radio to stop it being used in certain instances as um, a, a, a call to arms among the Congolese people from either Lumumba um, or the Katangans. And and so they're really involved in a civil war um, from the beginning. And, um, that causes a, a lot of tensions because ultimately they end up acting as partisans to the Congolese state because they do end the secession militarily um, in 1962. But that really damages their, the perception of their neutrality. Um, and that really is one of the reasons that there is no peacekeeping operation on this scale again until the end of the Cold War. Um, the other reason for that is that it's not until the late 1980s that the UN actually finishes paying for this Congo operation. It's extremely expensive, um, and it devastates the UN financially. Hmm.
1: And, and so, um, yeah, kind of like on that note, just sort of thinking about the longer-term legacies of the Congo crisis, um, are, are there other legacies that you see at the UN
0: um, I think two um, two things are worth bearing in mind. I mean, there have been a lot of legacies that have been drawn out, kind of lessons learned for peacekeeping. Um, although I think a lot more could be still done on, on that element of it. But at the UN, I think what's interesting about the Congo crisis is that it's not an isolated security challenge. It's a bit. It's, it has a lot of um, similarities, if you like, to. The way we talk about human security challenges that the, the Security Council deals with now, like Syria, right, where there is a humanitarian aspect, there is um, obviously the, 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 the military aspect, but there's the, also the whole sense of um, the state building aspect, the um, the whole question of the migration crisis that it produced. And at the Congo really has a lot of those multiple crises as well. There's a massive humanitarian challenge that comes out of this Um there is a whole financial crisis that comes out both for the Congo and for the UN. There is the peacekeeping element, of course, and then there's the whole kind of what's the UN's role in state building. So the Congo kind of opens up a whole host of challenges for the UN that they try to build architecture for afterwards to solve. So They try to um, create spaces and committees and ideas um, drawing on the Congo experience that um, really helps the UN to develop later and you see this particularly being led by global south countries who have under you know very difficult circumstances forged close alliances Um, and you see them creating then new committees and new lasting UN institutions um, a lot of which are designed to address some of the principles behind the Congo crisis like the quest for economic sovereignty or the challenge to share humanitarian resources in a crisis. Um, And I think so the UN, it's not a very fast learning institution if it learns at all. But I think that in that immediate moment in the 60s into the early 70s, a lot of the global south energy and motivation um, also comes from that kind of, if you like, solidifying experience of solidarity but also the kind of devastation wrought by the whole Congo crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. There's so much more in your book that um, we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, but uh, I'm just going to encourage the, um, the listeners to become readers. Nice. Um, and <laughs> and uh, just to finish off our um, discussion, um, can you give our listeners a preview of what you're working on right now?
0: Yeah, so uh, at the end of the, the book, um, you know, I, I was really interested in what happens next at the UN. So, my new project is about the ways in which um, we can un- uncover the invisible history of the UN and the Global South. So, how do Global South actors change the UN from um, the 1940s, in fact, until the 1980s? And it really comes out of that sense that everything we know about the UN is basically written from a Western perspective with Western sources and focusing on Western actors and their motivations. And we don't really know um, that much about the global South countries. Um, And what we do know is a story of failure, right, of the new international economic order that doesn't go anywhere and then um, debt crises in the 1980s. But my sense um, from the Congo is that these actors are actually much more dynamic uh, and active and interesting. And they're they're much more believers in the potential of the UN in the 1960s than a lot of Western states. So this project sets out a new history of the UN written from the perspective of the Global South.
1: Wonderful, I really look forward to that. Um, Alana, I really wanna thank you again for speaking with me today.
0: Thanks a lot and um, thanks for the invitation. And can I just mention that for that new project, I'm currently recruiting three PhD students and a postdoc, um, and I'm also going to run a series of workshops and conferences on these teams um, in Leiden, in The Hague, um, in the next couple of years. So if anybody's interested in um, getting involved or or coming along to to that, then please keep an eye on our website.
1: Great. Yeah, no, that's a very relevant uh, advertisement. (laughs) So thank you. Um, We've been discussing the diplomacy of decolonization, America, Britain, and the United Nations during, during the Congo crisis, 1960 to 1964. And the author is Alana O'Malley. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.